welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. And as we continue in the last days, names will become more and more prevalent. We just need to be ready. We're going to start seeing people who said they were something fall away from the faith. I will remind you, I am confident that if you've ever been saved, you don't get unsaved. So we're not talking about people that got unsaved. We're talking about people who never really were believers. And it's sad. It's unfortunate. I'm good. Perfect. That in the last days, uh, we'll start to see people. And it'll be evident now, that doesn't mean, I've got to say this, I haven't really said this in a while on Sunday, that doesn't mean we give up on them. If someone falls out of church or starts falling out of the faith, that doesn't mean we just say, well, they weren't one of the ones, let's just leave them alone. No, we go after them. We reach out to them. We call them. We try to encourage them to be uh, not just a part of the church, but to get saved, if that's the case, to be needed. But in James, over the last several months on Wednesday night, I keep seeing this theme, I keep uh, studying this theme of unity and my my commercial for for before I start is we have a great church there I don't come in I promise you I don't come in and preach I don't think there's ever been a time where you think it's happened I hope it's not where I come in and I build a message based on what I heard that week I don't I don't have enough time on Sunday mornings to do that usually but I'm not coming in and saying well I heard somebody talk about this this week so I'm gonna hit it hard on Sunday I don't think that's of God. I think it's unhealthy, and I think God's word is sufficient, and if we follow his leadership, he's going to have something for us every time we come and preach out of it. And um, I don't want anybody coming in preaching to me because they found out I was mean this week. And I'm not going to do it to you. So with that said, this church has been a church, and this is there's new people here. We've got a, a, a healthy mix in our church. On Sunday mornings, you come in, and it's great to see People have been here a long time, people that hadn't been here very long, young people, old people, and um, it's just great. And there hasn't been disunity in this church in my lifetime. Have there been bumps in the road? Yes. Have there been people to leave? Yes. Have there been people to come? Yes. But this church has been a healthy, unified church for my lifetime. And if you've been here, and I'm looking at many of you who've been here my lifetime and longer, We've had a unified church. I believe, even though we have our problems and we have our personalities, the reason this church has be, been healthy and unified through the years mainly is because the man who was preaching here for at least my lifetime stayed in the Word of God and didn't sway one way or the other. And there is unity in the Word of God. There is unity in preaching the Word of God. If you get up Sunday after Sunday and start hitting hot button issues and topics to just uh, get people aroused for a little while, that can create an unhealthy environment. So you're safe to stay with the Word of God. And not just Curtis Parker, but men, many on that wall who are Bible preachers through the years, uh, has, has really maintained a, a health and a unity in the church. So there's no, most of you know me well enough, this is not as a result of I'm here and there's disunity. Everybody clear on that? If I hear there's disunity, I'm just going to, we're recording, but we're not live, so everybody relax. If I hear there's disunity, 
in the church. And I hear specific names of specific people. We address it specifically. I'm not getting up with a shotgun on a Sunday and blasting the whole church for two people that's got a problem with their mouth. I'm not doing that. And so that's, this is in no way a result of something I've heard. This is because I believe, as I've been through James, there's a, a reminder to the church of the priority of unity. I said that this morning, in the local church and in the church as a whole. Can we at least all agree that A, we have an enemy, and B, that enemy is trying very hard to cause disunity among God's church in a multitude of different ways. And I mean church fighting church, pastor fighting pastor. Uh, oh, it's just a, it's, it's a fun world to be in. And we get distracted and we get separated as a church, big C church, for many issues that should not be the priority, that should not divide us. And what should unite us is the word of God and the truth of the good news of the gospel. Um, we're going to, if we're a believer, if you're truly born again, we're all going to the same heaven. And it ain't going to all be Baptists. Matter of fact, all Baptists won't be there. Right? But there's going to be some church of God and there's going to be some, you fill in the blank. Um, if they believe the gospel according to God's word. I thought about coming in tonight and talking about the faith of the queen tonight. Isn't that a fun topic? Y'all figure that out yourself. Can a Catholic or an Anglican leader of the church go to heaven? Y'all figure that out and let me know. That's not what tonight is. What I want us to do, we're gonna be in James. I've got five helpful truths from James that will promote unity in the church but before we go there I want us to stand as we read a portion of John chapter 17 so find it John 17 you probably know it you know what it once you get there you're like yeah I know this passage it's one to me one of the most important all scriptures important one of the most foundational passages in all of the New Testament John chapter 17, the end of John chapter 17, Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to die, he's going to be buried, and he's going to raise from the dead, and he's coming back again. But in John chapter 17, Jesus prays what scholars, church, church folks call the high priestly prayer, where Jesus is praying to his father. Some of us who've been to Israel, we've been to this spot, haven't we? How many looking? I'm looking around. We've been to the spot, haven't we? There's a rock in the church of all nations. This is the rock where Jesus prayed. They don't know that. It's a joke. But we've been there. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is there, and he's praying. And I want us to hear a portion, especially, of this prayer, and let it really highlight and underline God's desire for unity among his believers. You found John 17? If you have, let's stand and read this passage of scripture together. Tim, you've started there on verse nine, but I don't wanna bore everybody starting there, but there's an example of where he starts to pray. Start at verse 13, if you can, up there. 
Jesus is praying. He's praying for his disciples. Remember, he told them to, to watch him pray, and they're out there snoring. In verse 13, he says, And now I come to thee, God, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them my word, or thy word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil. There's a reason why when you got saved, God didn't take you out of the world. And Jesus prays for us, he prays for his disciples, and he prays, God, don't take them out of the world, even though it's gonna be tough, but keep them in the world, but keep them from evil. For they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. The truth not only will set a person free, the truth will sanctify and separate you from a lost and dying world. The truth will separate a believer from heretical teachings. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Here we go, verse 20. He's just talking about his disciples. Now he's talking about us. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. That's you. That's me. That's believers after the disciples, after the founding fathers of the early church. God, Jesus, in the garden prays for us. And what is his prayer for us? Verse 21. That they all may be one. As you, Father, art in me. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. I used to ask the youth all the time, I taught high school, did Jesus ever claim to be God? Of course he did. He said, I and the Father are one. You've seen the Father, you've seen me, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he says, as I am one, that we are one, you are in me and I in thee, that they, you, me, the church, Central Baptist Church, every good gospel preaching church, that they also may be one in us, because we're in Christ and he's in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Oh, that just changed my whole message. I forgot about that last part. How will the world believe if we're unified, if we're in unity? Here's a question, and, and this is completely free, and it's not part of my five points. People ask in the church today, why don't people get saved like they used to? Why don't we see what we used to see? I would say that what we see in John chapter 17, verse 21 is an answer, not the answer, but an answer for why we don't see it. When the church is in unity, time out. Some of you are old enough to remember the, the heydays of, of camp meetings, when it wasn't just the Baptist camp meeting. Anybody remember that? I, I'm too young for that. But when the Baptist came and the Methodist came and even some Lutheran came and even the Presbyterian came and the Church of God came and the Nazarene came and the Foursquare came and whoever else came. And there was one message preached and people got saved. We don't see that anymore. I don't, I don't know the last time that's happened. Matter of fact, I can't get some Baptist pastors to come step foot on this campus because we don't see eye to eye, one Southern, one Independent. What a disaster. What a, what a frown that must come to God's face when pastors can't get along because they, they support different missionaries. 
and all the un other ungodly rumors that go around that are completely untrue. Why, why is it we don't see people saved like we used to? Maybe because we're not in unity like we used to be. Not this, the church, this church, but the church. Because Jesus said, if we're in unity and we're together and we're one, the world may believe that thou hast sent me. They'll believe on Jesus. Our unity as a body of Christ or our disunity may be directly correlated to people being saved in our culture and in our country and in this world. Did anybody else see that there? God puts um, his stamp, he highlights, he bold faces and he underlines unity in the church. Everybody good with that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I would be remiss and foolish if I didn't say thank you publicly for a church that strives for unity. And I know this is not something that affects every church, but we have an enemy that's trying to cause dissension and division among your people. And may we be reminded of the importance of unity. May we be encouraged to strive for unity in our church and with other believers within the church. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I promise you I'm gonna be efficient with time going through this. Please, I believe this is very important. I did go through James, and I found 10, I said that this morning, I found 10 helpful themes, if you will, to promote unity. But because of time, and I didn't want this to turn into some kind of Sunday night, you know, every third or fifth or 16th Sunday, me preaching something about unity, I, I narrowed it down to five. In James, and for those of you who've been on Wednesday night, I'm not going to uh, elaborate on this. James is a very practical book. I think one of the things that's important to understand about James that, that coincides with John chapter 17 is that many uh, theologians refer to James as um, a companion teaching of Jesus. A lot of what James teaches in his book really highlights what Jesus taught in his life and in the Gospels. This might be because he grew up in the same house as Jesus. He was the half-brother of Jesus, although he didn't acknowledge him as Lord until later. Uh, most believe and most uh, points prove to after the resurrection, only then did James believe that this half-brother he lived with was the Son of God and got saved. But as a companion teaching of Jesus, James really highlights a lot of what Jesus taught to the church, to the believers. And I think it's clear to understand that Jesus did teach to the church. Jesus talked about the church. Jesus, uh, Jesus likes the church. That was, that was very elementary. Jesus loves the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Church is important, even in 2022. The local church is important. In this passage or in the books, the chapters of James, if you want to flip over there now, that's where we'll be. And I told Tim, don't be alarmed. There's a lot of pages, but I will not read or quote or use all of it. I want to point to five lessons that are taught in the book of James that if we listen and if we apply will help promote unity in the church. Number one, straight to it. 
we see the necessity of wisdom. Now, for those of you on Wednesday night, please act like you're excited and never heard this before. But James is a very exhaustive book, even though it's a small book, about the realities of life. In James uh, chapter 1, uh, we'll go through and just look at a couple points here. James talks about, in verse 2, to count it all joy when we fall in to various, diverse, the word there is colorful, temptations or trials is a better word. Trials and temptations are not the same, this is trials. The reality is we will all experience trials in our life. James knows this, God knows this, and tells us that we need wisdom. We need God's wisdom. In verse five of chapter one, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. What is wisdom? The wisdom scriptures from Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom comes from God. Wisdom does not come necessarily from life in general or from a university. The, the wisdom that James is referring to comes from God. It's directly tied, we'll see it, we can see it, not going to go there, and James, it's directly tied to maturity. It's tied to spiritual maturity, to growing, not just physically, not just in our spiritual life, but growing in grace and knowledge of the Word of God. A very quick, simple definition of wisdom is wisdom is godly knowledge put into practice. Wisdom is different from mere knowledge. Wisdom makes decisions about life based on the truth God reveals in Scripture. It's a lot to do with perspective. It tells us in James, James tells us that trials don't give us wisdom, God does. Trials produce patience. That's what it says in James. Not going to re-preach Wednesday night. But knowing that there will be trials, knowing that there will be difficulties, God says through James, ask me for wisdom. Ask me for godly discernment. Ask me for your point of view, God. I gave a quote last Wednesday that had something to do with wisdom as it's appropriated in um, a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. It talks about patience that is necessary and available and able to be put into practice based on our worldview. In other words, like this morning, we were talking about how things are getting worse and worse, but we can make it because we know it's temporary, it's temporal, and that there is an eternal to look forward to. That's practicing godly wisdom. That's not just getting ticked off and blowing your top and going off crazy because this and this and this is happening, and I can't believe this, and why would God allow this to happen? No, we respond in wisdom. And just a sneak peek, James is going to get to how we respond by watching our mouth in just a few points. I'm going to hit the tongue there, right? Everybody's excited about that one. That's what we're going to call names. So we need wisdom. I mentioned even this past Wednesday that all of us should or maybe do know people that we say, man, that is a wise man. That's a wise woman. And we look at them and from a spiritual, biblical point of view, we, we understand we could give a little dissertation of why they're wise. And usually it has to do with they, they don't talk a lot. But when they do, they're like E.F. Hutton. 
That's just for a certain demographic. We all listen, right? I don't even know who E.F. Hutton was. I think he had something to do with finance, but I remember the commercial like most of you. When E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. And that's that wise man. That's that wise woman. They're not always just yap, 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 yapping and have an opinion about everything, but when it's time, you want to hear their opinion and everybody shuts up and listens. That's that wisdom. That's that godly wisdom that comes from God. And God says if we're going to be in unity, we need to ask him for his wisdom. Anybody learned in life, I'm sure it's in 1 Corinthians or a pastoral epistle or Proverbs, that everybody has an opinion? Has everybody learned that so far in life? We're all learning when to share it and when not to share it, or when to actually take someone's opinion for any worth at all. That's wisdom. To know when to say it, when not to say it, know when how to apply what someone says based on a biblical perspective. And so one way that we keep unity in a church, in a local church, is to ask God for wisdom. Here's a real quick practical application. Some things aren't worth arguing about. Some things are not priority. So we just don't get involved in it. I won't go any further. We'll just say that's right. Number two, in order for us to maintain wisdom, uh, maintain unity, it's important that we understand collectively the source of temptation. These are, these are all in James. And in James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, uh, this word is temptation. This word is not trials in chapter 1. This is temptation. This is being tempted to do something wrong. This is tempted to sin, tempted to fall short. And James tells us in verses 13 through 15, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot tempt with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when why? Why? He's drawn away or she's drawn away from their own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. It's always important to, to notice the word lust there because usually, especially in my when I dealt with children forever and teenagers, you say lust and they immediately go to one area. This, this word lust here is used often in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing. He's talking about sinful, selfish desires. It's not just a sensual, sexual term. It's things that are selfish desires that lead us to temptation or temptations that we succumb to because of our selfish desires. And it's really important for us to understand that we love ourselves. We do. More than anything else on the planet, we love ourselves. That's how we were born. But as we go closer to, closer to God, we start to love ourselves less and love Him more. The source of temptation is who? Who's responsible for temptation? Not God. This is important for us to understand. If we're going to maintain unity in the church, when we're tempted, when we fall, when we mess up, we don't blame God. He tells us in verse 13, God cannot be tempted, neither does he tempt any man. We don't confuse the reality that we are tempted and we can fall of our own volition. But it's our nature to blame somebody. Some people blame God. In, in the Garden of Eden, this is a great example. 
Eve caused Adam to sin, right? All the men said amen. He was just trying to be a submissive, loving husband. She handed him this delightful fruit. And he said, no, I shouldn't do that because God said not to. And she said, come on, we're no longer two but one. I'm adding to scripture. That's in the message version. That's not in King James or anything good. No, that's not what happened. But she offers, he takes it, and when God says, why did you do this? What does God say? The woman you gave me. Did y'all not know this in Genesis or just so new? In Genesis, Adam says to God, the woman you gave me caused me to sin. You see how he blamed God indirectly? The woman you gave me, God, caused me. And then when the woman gets confronted, she says, well, it was the snake that you made God. It's our nature to blame someone else. In church, this is very practical. This is not something you go to a seminar to figure out or get somebody really smart to tell you. We can, we can solve a lot of problems. We can maintain unity when we're man or woman, Christian man or woman enough to know that when we messed up, it was us and not God and not somebody else. That takes a big boy and a big girl to be able to say that. Man is responsible for temptation. He says in verse 13, it wasn't God. In verse 14, he says it's man. Because a man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. James makes it clear God's not responsible for it, but man is responsible for it. Our desire is to please God. Even as a believer, as a believer our desire is to please God, but we still wake up every morning with flesh. And when we fail and when we fall, yes, we're to ask for forgiveness. Yes, we're to confess. Yes, we're to turn. But we can't let that reality overflow into bringing other people into it. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's a preacher's fault. It's a deacon's fault. Do you understand how, how churches get messed up sometimes when people start blaming church leadership for their own problems and their own faults and their own failures? And how easy that is because it's our nature to blame. It's our nature to, to push, get away from me. It's got to be somebody else's problem. We're enticed. It's the word for bait on a hook. Yeah, we do have an enemy. We're tempted. But we also have flesh, which is easily enticed. So what do we do? We, we ask for wisdom. We ask God for his help. We ask God to, to protect us. We ask God, how about Jesus uh, praying and teaching his disciples how to pray? Lead me not into temptation. I'm convicted every time I read that. This is in the Lord's Prayer that people quote just for the fun of it. And I think how much better my day might be or how much less I might stumble if I would pray, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me. Keep the devil off my whatever. Or keep that person out of my path. Or help me, enable me, empower me with your Holy Spirit. Martin Luther said this, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting there. I couldn't help it. I, I, used, to, I used to hear this old school theology. If you got a problem with drinking, don't go down the beer aisle at the grocery store, right? That's a very, very elementary way of saying 
can't keep, well, you can't get the food line from, can't keep them from selling beer, but you don't have to walk and hang out there. Can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from hanging out on your head. Number three, to promote unity, we need to understand, and it's going to say up there, receiving the word and doing the work. Let me just say this. We've got a lot of work to do. If you don't hear anything else I say in this whole unity conversation, there's something that I think I've learned, I am learning, and I will continue to learn that makes all the difference in the stress of a job as a pastor. On one hand, it relieves a lot of stress. On the other hand, it puts a ton of burden on your shoulders. The church is much bigger than one person. The cause of Christ is far greater than one person. The ministry that God has called us to do is much bigger than one person. I can't do it all. I shouldn't try to do it all. We all individually can't do it all. Church, the gospel, the ministry, we have to be, and I tried, I've talked to our pastoral staff about this, I think they know my heart, they know my philosophy, maybe you've seen this fleshed out and going on my fifth year as a senior pastor here, this church should not be built on a personality. This church and every church should be built on the person of Jesus Christ. I will fail. Every pastor will fail in some way, shape, or form. Every leader will fail. We are carnal. We are flesh. We will fail. People will fail you. People will sin. People will mess up. We cannot build the church on the personality of some, you know, Hollywood celebrity. It, it really, I mean, we can get up and we can point out heretics and we can point out phony gospels and all that fun stuff. It's not fun. That's not, I shouldn't even say it that way. And it's happening, and it's happening by the hundreds of thousands in America. And it's unfortunate that we're sending people to an eternal hell from the comfort of a happy message. It's what's happening. We ought to call it out. We ought to preach the gospel true and tell people the difference. But I cringe at the fact that many of these churches, and we could call their names, not just around here, but in the country and all over the world, the churches and their movements that are built on a personality and it's only a matter of the next news cycle that that personality fails miserably and it does detrimental harm to the cause of Christ because a church or a movement was built on a personality. There are reasons. There are methods to my madness, usually. I've tried to tell my wife that for going on 14 years now. I don't usually do things haphazardly. She tells people I buy cereal like I'm buying a house. There's, I've got, I mean, the other day she looked at me in the grocery store because we were going, we were at Sam's Club. And I'm just not just going to buy paper towels. I'm going to do the math. I'm going to figure out. That thing says two-ply. Is it really two-ply? Is that one two-ply? 110 of two-ply versus 108 of one. Uh, I do that. And it's not fun. Don't envy me. You don't want to do it because this mind is crazy. But even in the church, in five years now, of being the pastor here, I do things intentionally most of the time, and I don't want this church to ever be built on me. Number one, I'm not worthy. Number two, I'm frail, and I will mess up, and I don't want to hurt the cause of Christ because the church was built on a personality and not the person of Jesus Christ. If I can do anything to promote something other than a personality of me, I want to do it. 
Here's, here's the secret. That's one of the reasons why our pastoral staff preaches on Sunday night. I need to hear them. I want to hear them. I want them up there. They were called to preach. They ought to be able to preach. And God's word is true, and it doesn't matter if he, she, not she, he, he, or whoever's preaching. <laughs> God's word will not return void. It's the power of the word, not the power of the person doing it. So we have a big job to do. There's receiving the word in James chapter 1. And he tells us to prepare ourselves to receive the word. And we're not going to go through that uh, because I've done it on Wednesday night. But to help promote unity, we need to receive the word of God as the word of God. It solves a lot of problems in the church. It's there. It doesn't change. The rules are there. There's, there's so much conversation now, even in Baptists and Southern Baptists, and it's like, man, we're wasting our time having this conversation because it's already been handled. Don't rewrite it. Don't, it doesn't matter what you think. Do y'all see how the great collision is taking place in America and our culture? Because everybody gets everything they want, how they want it, when they want it. We customize everything for everybody. But this is not customizable. See the collision? See the problem? Yeah, but we've been trained to where we get everything the way we want it, when we want it, and how we want it. Guess what? That's not how this works. We, we try to do it in churches. We try to make everybody happy and everybody comfortable, and we kind of do some of those things on the soft edges that don't have anything to do with the Bible so that we keep people happy. But when it comes to the Word of God, we can't do that. Thou shalt not have air conditioning in thy building. That's not there, so we can have it. When it's 90 degrees outside, thou shalt not have a tent meeting in the parking lot next to a church that has air conditioning. That should be in there, <laughs> but it's not. I'll never forget going to one of those in Asheboro. I, I was spiritual, though. I wanted to be spiritual with the other spiritual guys, and we got in the car, and we went down to the camp meeting, and it was hot as blue blazes. And we were, I was sitting there looking at the church thinking, you can probably hear their air condition running. It's like, why are we out here sweating? Um, no, I'm not spiritual enough to do that. I've done it. Been there. Receive the word. It's important to receive the word of God. Not just to receive it, but to do it. There's a whole message in James chapter 1 where we're to be, you've heard this, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That's not just in our conversation. That's not just in marriage counseling. That's in the receiving of the word of God. We're to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. As a church, when the word of God is preached, when the word of God is sung, when the word of God is taught, our, our response should be, I want to hear what God has to say. Amen. We've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. You've heard that, right? But God wants us to hear and not talk. Just listen to me. Listen to my word. Benefit from my word. And then be slow to talk. I'm not going to look over there on that side, but sometimes as a parent, I say, it's time for me to talk and you to listen. Kind of, in a nice way. Like, I didn't say anything expecting a response from you. Most questions, like what God, when God asks a question, it's usually rhetorical. He doesn't need an answer. I'm not saying I'm God, but as a parent, I usually know the answer. I just want to know that you know the answer. Am I, am I the only one? So y'all help me out so they don't look at me so funny over there. That's how we do as parents, right? It's not time for you to talk. It's time for you to listen. 
because I make the rules around here. And God says, the rules are made, I want you to listen. I want you to listen. And there's a love aspect to this too. It's definitely not just disciplinary. It's I want you to listen because I have plans for your life. I love you more than anything on the planet and I want the best for you and your life will be so much better and so much more pleasant if you'll just listen to me. Don't talk back, just listen. And when you hear it, be slow to speak and be slow to anger because what you hear you might not like. That's the, the priority of receiving the word of God. It's an important deal when a pastor gets up, a preacher gets up, a Sunday school teacher gets up, a small group leader gets up, a youth pastor gets up, a Sunday school teacher and opens up the word of God. It's a big deal. As a matter of fact, when he starts talking about the tongue later, he says, hey, don't many of you want to be a teacher because there's a stronger, more stringent judgment for those of you who are opening and reading and talking the word of God. There's a, we have to receive the word and then there's a lot of work to do. And uh, there's a lot, to, a lot of work to do personally this, here's the promotion of unity. You look into the perfect word, the mirror of God's word, and you see you got something on your face, what do you do? Wipe it off. We don't need to read all this. Y'all looking at me like, is that in scripture? That's in James, right? He says we look into the word of God, we look into a mirror, and if we see something, we ought to fix it. When God shows us something, we ought to fix it. But someone who is a phony Christian or someone who's a careless Christian will see it and turn around and walk away as if they never saw it. They forget what they saw. They didn't forget. They chose to forget what they saw. Here's something I believe helps promote unity in the church. That we realize collectively when we all look into the mirror of God's word, we all see something that needs to be fixed. We don't just look at this one and say, Do you, have you looked in the mirror lately? You got something on your, yeah, you got barbecue sauce on your lips. No, we all know that if we come in and collectively look into the mirror of the word of God, I had ribs yesterday, that's why the barbecue sauce is on my mind, I'm kind of hungry already. But anyway, when we all do it, we know we, we're, we all got something we need to fix. I don't know why, I've never heard it a lot from any preachers, but I, I want our church to understand, and I said it again today at the end of the service, I want us to understand this is a place to find help. This is a place to come in when you're hurting and get help. Not, to, not for somebody to be your mirror. This is our mirror. Amen. And when we collectively look at it together, we see that we're, we're not perfect. And we know it and we understand we're not perfect, but we want to get some help. And when God shows us, hey, that needs to be tweaked, that needs to be fixed, that we fix it. Don't go around fixing everybody else's. That's right. That's right. Seemed like Jesus told a parable about that. A speck of dust, when you got the big beam sticking out of your eye, first get the beam out, and then we can help each other out. See how Jesus taught that, and James is his half-brother saying, let me tell you this again. Receive the word and do the work. Fix what needs to be fixed and then do something about it. Don't just say it, do it. He talks about faith, and I gotta move on because that'll take a long, long time. But I do wanna mention a point in verses 14 through 26 of James chapter two, when he talks about faith and works. We got a lot of work to do. We've got the work of the gospel, we got the work of ministry. We got hurting people. 
This is fresh, hot off the press, and I'm not going to tell anything I don't know yet, but I met with Miss Patty Urie before. Uh, she's our, I don't know what her official title is now, our PhD of Health and Community Organization of Religious, I don't know, something. And um, she does a great job. She does a lot of things people don't know about, and she's on top of it. And uh, Atrium Health wants to put a mobile like health clinic here two days a week because of the area that we're living in, or uh, area that we're located in. And it'd be a great opportunity. We'll talk about that more uh, as, the, as more information happens. But there's a work in ministry to do where Jesus expects us to help those who need help. That's not part of the message, but it is part of a reminder that Central Baptist Church and its physical location is in a very strategic place. We would not have built this church two years ago, not take the market out of it. We would not have built a church. We would not have built this church in this location two years ago. For, well, I don't need to, I'm not a realtor, but I don't need to tell you why. But we're here. And most, most, when I say most, probably 95 to 98% of our membership does not live within two miles of this church. tells us a lot but it also tells us and we know this there's a lot of people around us that need help they need the gospel but they need help they need physical help they need spiritual help they need emotional help and and so this is a great opportunity and this really hot off the press so it's just an idea and I think about this I think about these decisions and I meet with Patty and she's asking about this and she had already told me about it ahead of the meeting and I'm thinking you know what James chapter 2 comes into play because if we really are who we say we are and we have an opportunity to help somebody, even if it's indirectly as a third party, we ought to help somebody. And he says, well, you know, what profit is it if you go up to somebody who's cold and say, oh, you're cold, go in peace, be warm, when you have a coat in your back seat. Oh, you're hungry, go in peace, be filled, when you just threw away more than most people will eat in a week in a third world country. And he talks about faith and works and, and how our works really validate our faith and there's a lot of work to do and here's the overwhelming principle of unity in the church we got too much to do to be arguing and silly about things that don't matter but you just said we don't argue i know we're good let's keep it that way number four james chapter two here's something that promotes unity everyone has worth everyone has value In James chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. In other words, don't be a respecter of persons. He goes on and he talks about, he gives a vivid example of probably what took place in a church. And if you know James, you should have been here on Wednesday because I'm not going to bore you with the extra details about it for time's sake. But James gets pretty specific about this and he talks about when people come into a church that we treat them all equally he's literally talking about a local church a local assembly and it's crazy the point he makes because he says you you lift up and honor the people who hate you and mistreat you and tax you and do the things that they shouldn't do just because they're special you bring them in and give them a seat up front and say hey, everybody welcome mr or mrs such and such but the one that comes in poor, the one that comes in without a, a title, you put them in the back and you show them no treatment except bad treatment. 
and he talks about unity in the church can be promoted. He doesn't mention unity. It can be promoted by the fact and practicing the fact and the reality that everybody has value. Everybody has worth. On one hand, no, I don't. I'm not even going to say that. May it never be said. I mean this with all sincerity as your pastor, as a fellow Christian, as a leader of this church. May it never be said that this church mistreated someone, especially when they walked in the doors of the church and in some way showed them that they, didn't, that they weren't valued. There's no place for it in the church. There's no place for it in this church. I've said from day one, I want any and everybody to feel welcome coming in the doors. What's preached and how they respond is between them and God. I said welcome but not comfortable. There's times I come in and I leave uncomfortable because you were mean to me. No, because the word of God was preached and it was uncomfortable. But I, I hope I can look around and see people whose faces look like they at least minimally agree that nobody should ever come in the doors of the walls of this church for any reason and feel like they're not special, like they're not valued, like they're worthless. There's enough of that mess going on in the world. There's enough of that mess going on in the schools with the bullying and all the craziness going on. If there's a place where someone should feel welcome and special, it certainly ought to be the doors of the local church. And James talks about that. He doesn't really go into talking about membership feeling better than the others, but not all of us are in the same boat together. We're in this together. Yeah, we have different jobs. Yeah, we have different education levels. Yeah, we got different health. We're all different. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But we also all have different gifts, talents, God-given gifts, God-given talents. And we're all special, even the little peaky toes, he says. There's a place for all of us within the local church, within the believers within the local church. So we need to value everyone. And number five, and for your time, for time's sake and all of us, this is going to be the last one and be quick. To promote unity, we must beware of the dog. No, the tongue. Beware of the tongue. In James chapter 3. Verses 1 through 10, and this is fresh on our Wednesday night minds, James talks about the importance of our little member, the tongue. I'm not going to elaborate as we have on Wednesdays, but James talks about the power of the tongue and the potential of the tongue. And all of us have been in church any amount of time or been alive for any amount of time, can probably, amen, apart from Scripture, even, the power of the tongue, the power of the mouth. On Wednesday, I'm a little more loose, and I usually give some great quotes of wisdom from my dad. That, that should, you should all laugh if you knew my dad. But he used to have a lot to say about my mouth and other people's mouths and um, there were none from scripture but they were all validated by his disciplinary efforts and he would say things like don't write don't let your mouth write a check that 
your honey can't cash or something like that. Or don't let your mouth overrun other body parts. And we all are susceptible to letting our mouth get a little haywire. And James underlines the reality that our tongues are untamable by man. I'm giving the highlights for you Wednesday night crowd. No man can tame it. Every animal's been tamed, been to the circus. Can tame everything, but that little tongue is restless. And no man can tame it. Here's the answer. But God can. That's the inclination. He specifically says no man can tame it, but God can. How? Ask him to help you. Please don't let me say something stupid. Part of my prayer every Sunday. I try to make it a little fancier than that for God on Sunday morning. But I say, please don't let me say something dumb. Some of you are thinking, he hasn't helped much. <laughs> but don't mess up too bad. Don't let me have a slip and say whatever. Our tongue is powerful. He uses the example of a rudder on a ship. He talks about a bit in a horse's mouth and how powerful that little tongue can be, like a bit that can move a, a massive horse one way or the other. And a rudder who's little comparative to the ship and how it can make the ship go where it needs to go. So we see the power of the tongue and then here's something that's really important that we understand, the potential of the tongue. And I think this is where, for honest church, a lot of unity is destroyed. A lot of disunity is sown. That little tongue. The phrase, the quote that I read years ago is the, the tongue, the sharpest of all blunt objects. But of course, we know sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Know how, how much of a lie is that? How powerful and the potential. Here's what, here's what the devil, I, I believe this, here's what the devil will convince you. I'm not important enough for my words to matter. I can say this, I'm nobody. That little tongue, which is a fiery pit, the fire of hell, James says, can cause, the, the word there, the writing there, is cause a forest fire. It's in there. I'm not reading it all, but it's in there. It can set the world on fire, that little fiery tongue of the insignificant person who thinks what I say doesn't matter. It does matter. What you say does matter. What you don't say, what I don't say, does matter. I read a quote that I, I mentioned on Wednesday night that says, human speech is a graphic representation of human depravity. I remember being a child and being a teenager and being old now. But even as a teenager thinking, why did I say that? Anybody ever, I mean, it just happened to me? It's like, I don't know why I said that. Because you're evil. Because no. that tongue is a fiery little poisonous snake. And every word that proceeds from your mouth began in your heart. And the heart's wicked. Right? That's what the Bible says. Even for the most perfect child. And I can remember, I told the crowd this the other night. I was living on 
401 East 16th Street. I'm sorry, 402, right across from 401, which is Central Baptist Church. And the pastor and the kids, the pastor's kids live behind us. And um, so when the pastor was out or the kids were out, we had to act a little more spiritual, even though his kids didn't, but that's a different story. <laughs> and one of the daughters was over, the middle daughter to be exact, with my next oldest brother, and everybody's running around. And I said something that I shouldn't have said. And even though I'm brilliant and was a brilliant little child, I had no idea what it meant. But I had heard it. I'd heard this portion, I'd heard this portion. I put them together and it made it really bad and graphic. And it was a graphic depiction of human depravity. It really was. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew enough to know I shouldn't have said it. And my next to the oldest brother, who was the least spiritual of all of us, thought it was spiritual to go tell my mom that I had said that, and that I had said it in front of Debbie, the pastor's daughter, which made it worse. Shouldn't have, because we're all depraved and we're all full of the devil, but because, you know, we don't want to be embarrassed talking in front of the, I was like, do you know what she does? I, mean, I didn't do that. So because of that, my mom was um, a loving mom who wanted to discipline me in the right way that God would be pleased, said, get over here. And fortunately, she was close to the sink where the palm oil of dishwashing liquid was, and she said, open up whoa, do you know about soap poisoning? I don't know. And um, she grabbed a big green bottle of palm olive and she squirted in my mouth full. Full. I mean like a dab, like more than you should ever wash two, two things of dishes with. And she filled it up and she said, now swish it around. And literally I'm swishing palm olive in a mouthful, trying not to gag. I think bubbles are flying out. It was, it was a bad situation. Because human speech is a graphic representation of human depravity. And that thing's uncontrollable by man. And unfortunately, there's a lot of, this is going to sound mean, there's a lot of people in churches today that need their mouth washed out because they can't control it and they're saying things that are hurting people, separating people, and causing division. And maybe it would stop if we started having mouth washings. Instead of foot washings, we have mouth washing. Well, we heard, we heard you said that this week, so come on up. And um, our chairman of deacons has a bottle of palm olive, and uh, we'll fix that. Now swish it around for everybody to see. It's a fire capable of defiling the whole body and the whole church. The word there in in the passage in James is um, the circle of life. It's a it's like this circle of gossip it's a circle of communication like the game gossip where something starts here and ends up only god knows where it's going to end and it's never anything close to how it started that's happening that happens every day it happens it's happening in the school life right now because we're you know we had a school that's got mold or some kind of something in it and um we're hearing all kind of rumors like how did that ever start and it's fun especially when you know the truth. But here's, what I've, here, here's a helpful thing, a helpful truth in Proverbs 26, 20, and this will help promote unity in the church. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. So where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceases. In my short tenure as pastor and in my lengthier 12 years as youth pastor here, making 16 plus total years 
in this church in the pastoral role. I have learned Proverbs 26, when there's no wood, the fire goes out. If you want to help promote unity in your church, when the circle comes your way, don't give it any wood and allow the fire to go out. Because if you'll throw a log on the fire, it'll keep going. And a lot of damage, a lot of damage in people's individual lives and in church lives. We all know it. We've all had a church history. We've all been to churches. A lot of, a lot of hurt could have been prevented if one person would have quit putting the wood on the fire. And the person comes and says, did you hear about such and such? No, I haven't and don't want to. Or yeah, I have and don't want to hear anymore. And I have found this to be true. If you do that enough, they'll quit telling you. But if you give them your number and say, I'm open ears to anything you've got to say, they'll fill it full. And they'll go to you and you'll be that one. Oh, this is where, that's the closest names I'm going to get. You'll be that one that says to everybody, I don't know why they keep telling me all this. I love that. I love that. That person, I want to look at them. That's when I wonder how Jesus looked at liars. And like, how can I do this? I don't know why they keep telling me. I don't know why they keep coming to me with all this. I know why you keep listening to it. If you tell them you don't want to hear it and move on, it'll stop. Be the one that stops it. When there's no fire, the wood goes out. I love and I remember on Wednesday night we were talking about this. In James chapter 3, verse 10, Paul's, uh, James' exhortation is, um, my brethren, these things ought not be. Church, Christian, believer, this shouldn't happen. Don't you do it. I'm going to shut up now. And I want to, I want to, when we leave here, and I pray in just a couple seconds, a couple things to leave with. Number one, thank God. As far as I know, and I ought to know, this church is in unity. We don't have disunity. I know, I know, some of you are thinking, he is full, he's, he's the most naive. No, I know we got tongue lappers. That's the Curtis Parker prayer. He used to say tongue lappers, so I'm going to use that. I know we got them. I know we still got people with rotary phones that light them up every Sunday. I know it. Can you call their names? Yeah, will you? No. I know it. Most of them, the greatest news is they don't, they don't ever set foot in this church anymore. I'm not saying the ones going to another church. I'm saying people that just hear and they get on the phone and they call. I know it goes on. I also tell you why it goes on. It's been allowed to go on for too long and now they're not apart and they don't give and they don't have anything to do so I just ignore them. Are you serious? That's really happening? Yeah, it does. Are they hurtful? No, because most people don't know them anymore. But, G but James says, brethren, this ought not be. This ought not be. And some of you are really caught back in that. You don't know what to do with what I just told you. Here's what it is. It's a circle of people. They do it every Sunday, but they don't really bother the people that are doing the work of the church, so I just let them go at it. Some of you are really wondering right now, is he serious? Yeah, it's all right. Relax. They're not talking about you because they don't even know you go here because they haven't been here so long. Thank God that we have unity and are doing 
the work of the ministry. And here's the exhortation from me, not from James. Let's not be a person that would cause disunity in the church. I cannot imagine. I'm, my heart's just as wicked according to Scripture as anybody else's. And I'm going to do my fair share of wrong things and have and will and probably plan on it in the next couple days. But I can't imagine, I really can't imagine being the person responsible for destroying another person or for the love of God and everything holy, destroying God's church. I can't imagine that. There used to be a day where there was a fear of the Lord where people didn't want to mess with the preacher, they didn't want to mess with the church. Those days are long gone. And the fact that they're not struck dead or fall over with a heart attack or stricken with boils is proof that God is gracious and loving and merciful. Because it happens Sunday after Sunday in churches all over the country. But thank God, we don't have to be that kind of person. Don't be that kind of person. I'd hate to know I had anything to do with causing division in God's bride and his church. Thank God for it and don't be a part of it. We need wisdom from God. We understand the source of temptation. We understand the priority of receiving the word of God. This is a church, by the way, that understands the priority of receiving the word of God. I believe that as much as I'm standing here. For the most part, this is a church where people understand the priority of the word of God. Understand that everybody has worth. And let's beware of our tongue and other people's. Now, Wednesday night when we talked about the tongue, we made a pact with each other that we were not going to mess up for a whole week with our tongue. Somebody, is he serious? No. We all signed a sheet down at the, front, at the altar in front of God. So we're going to do that tonight. We're not. It's a joke. But let's ask God to help. The picture there was man can't tame it, but God can and it drives us to Acts chapter 2 where God controlled the tongue. And that tongue that's capable of starting fires and causing dissension and causing division can actually be a tool of God to bring people to salvation, to allow God to do work in a person's life. Would you stand with me? Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.